It's a pleasure to welcome you. My name is Marika Taconi. I'm the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And uh, thank you all, all of you for coming this evening. Uh, I realize it's raining out there, so um, it's not beautiful weather, but here we are, and this is wonderful to see so many of you here. Um, <clears throat> most of you in this room probably know by now that uh, the Palmer Museum of Art has just acquired a beautiful painting by Giovanni Baglione, which is a gift by Mary Jane Harris, who is with us this evening. Mary Jane, where are you? Thank you, Mary Jane. It is a really, truly remarkable um, addition to the permanent collection of the Palmer Museum, Museum, and we are very, very grateful to you for this wonderful gift. Um, to help us give uh, some context to Giovanni Baglione and Rome and the early 17th century, uh, we have invited Joseph Connors uh, to be our very special speaker uh, this evening. He comes directly from Florence, and so we are doubly privileged to be able to welcome him at Penn State. Um, Joseph Connors will be talking about um, Rome in the early 17th century, obviously art and architecture of Rome in that period, but also he will be um, broadening that context just a bit. Um, Joseph Connors' lecture this evening is part of uh, the Institute's Moments of Change initiative, and uh, if you haven't uh, yet picked up a copy of the brochure, there are some copies uh, just outside of this room, and I uh, invite you to get a copy on the way out. Moments of Change is a year-long initiative that is um, organized by the Institute for the Arts and Humanities with a number of partners, including the Palmer Museum, uh, but many other partners here at Penn State. Uh, it's really a chance for us to take a look at a 25-year period, and this year we are focusing on the early 17th century, uh, 1600 to 1625, and exploring the early Baroque from many different angles, um, art and music and theater, um, all of the uh, innovations in the history of science and technology, uh, we just had uh, some wonderful productions of Shakespeare recently. So it's really a broad investigation of this wonderful 25-year uh, period. So this is one of those events, and uh, I urge you to come to many others. Um, tomorrow, uh, as a matter of fact, Apollo's Fire, the Cleveland Baroque Orchestra, will be in residence. This is a partnership between the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, the Center for the Performing Arts, and the School of Music. And uh, all of the uh, various events are listed on this brochure, so please take a look later. Um, and tomorrow night is their uh, very special performance. On Wednesday uh, at 12.10 here in the Palmer Museum, there will be a performance of uh, Baroque music, part of the Palmer's uh, The Art of Music series, and uh, this will be um, <coughs> a uh, performance given by the uh, Penn State Baroque Ensemble uh, from 12.10 to 1 o'clock here at the Palmer Museum. But going back to um, Joseph Connors and to his lecture this evening, um, I do have a more formal introduction, which I will read in just a second, but let me preface that with a bit of a more personal note. Um, Joe Connors is one of those rare individuals who uh, really embodies the concept of the Renaissance man, the Renaissance person. Uh, he is a distinguished scholar uh, whose interests range from the Renaissance all the way up to uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. He is a superb teacher and the sort of mentor that all of us in academia really aspire to be. 
He is an um, inspired administrator um, who has led the, uh, the American Academy in Rome and now the Villa Itatti Center in Florence and has really helped establish these centers as the foremost institutions for interdis interdisciplinary exchange and research. Um, and finally, but perhaps most important, he is a warm and gracious human being. And those of us in this room who have had the privilege of being fellows at Villa Itati in Florence have really experienced uh, this warmth and this uh, wonderful person firsthand. So really, we are so happy to have you here. Um, as a friend and as a model of excellence in scholarship, teaching, and leadership, it is a great pleasure for me personally to introduce him to you this evening. We also extend a warm welcome to his wife, Francoise Connors, who is toward the back of the room, uh, who is the uh, coordinator of cultural affairs at Villa Itati in Florence. Joseph Connors is professor of art, history, and architecture at Harvard, and the director of Villa Itati, the Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies in Florence, Italy. Previously, he was director of the American Academy in Rome between 1988 and 1992, and professor of art history and department chair at Columbia University. The recipient of numerous fellowships and scholarly awards, Dr. Connors has written extensively on uh, the Italian Renaissance and Baroque architecture and related subjects. Among his many publications, and really we would be here all night if I were to list them all, but among his many um, foremost publications are the books uh, Boromini and the Roman Oratory, Style and Society, published by MIT Press in 1980, and The Roby House of Frank Lloyd Wright, published by the University of Chicago. His lecture this evening is entitled Baglione's World, Rome in the Early 17th Century. It is co-sponsored by the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, the Department of Art History, and the Friends of the Palmer Museum of Art. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Joe Connors. We are truly honored and delighted to have you here uh, across so many miles. Marika, thank you for that lovely introduction and your very kind words. It's a great pleasure to be back at Penn State. Um, and in this time in particular, to meet the very gracious director uh, of the museum, curators, dean of the College of the Arts, uh, to meet donors of the museum in particular, and to see Mary Jane Harris, my fellow New Yorker, and to thank her in person for this wonderful gift. But I should mention that in the world of art history, um, Penn State is very well known and has been for a long time. Um, the world, uh, uh, for instance, knew very much Cesare Battisti, who was the chairman of the art history department in the 70s, uh, a great writer on Alberti, Piero della Francesca, uh, something he called the anti-Rinascimento. Then Helmut Hager, who held the chair for probably, I bet, 15 years or more, who founded Penn State Papers in Art History, a great scholar both on Giotto and on the late Baroque, strangely enough, combining the two, under whose chairmanship I first visited to lecture. And now, under Craig Zabel, I see a very dynamic young department following in the footsteps of these great masters. It's very impressive and, and very thrilling to be here. Um, Uh, what I want to do in my 146 slides and an hour 
is to begin by showing you Rome in the late, uh, in 1593 to be precise, in a wonderful map of Antonio Tempesta. So we'll focus from the broader to the narrower. Uh, then, I, since the theme is moments of change, I want to look at two or three engines of change. I'll look at the greatest architectural project of Rome at the time, the completion of St. Peter's by Carlo Moderno. Then I want to look, uh, I'll, I'll mention several, but I'll focus on one of the great counter-reformational basilicas that changed the shape of downtown Rome and offer patronage to uh, the artists of the first decades of the century. In particular, I'll look at Philip Neri's church of uh, Santa Maria in Vallicella, where the artists that we'll see, at least briefly, are the Cavalieri d'Arpino, Barocci, Caravaggio, and Rubens. Then uh, I'll switch to the secular realm, looking at the Farnese Gallery, and in particular, the famous Karachi cycle of the loves of the gods. Uh, I signed a contract that said no nudity in this lecture, so you'll have to close your eyes at some point. Uh, th that, of course, is about 1598 to 1600. Then right exactly at the same time, 1599, I'll be looking at a single chapel by Caravaggio, the famous Contarelli Chapel in the French Church of San Luigi, and trying to see where he came from and then project him a bit in the future. And I'll take up his great rivalry with Baglione that happens in the course of 1601 to 1603, exactly the time of the painting in the museum. Um, I'll go a little bit into Baglione, but I'll really pick up on Baglione as a writer, because that's where his genius lies, I think, to some extent. The later life is spent more in writing than in painting. And finally, I'll just come back, and, and by way of summary, and look at St. Peter's, look at the Vallicella, look at a few things, and see what happens to them in the high Baroque period, well beyond the time scale of the present um, uh, celebrations. Tempesta's map is one of the great maps of uh, Rome. It's, uh, of course, a bird's eye pictorial map, about um, not, not, not as big as the slide, but it's about half as big, extremely long thing. Shows north at the left. Uh, and you would uh, come into the city there. The Tiber is, of course, running like an S-shaped curve through the whole thing, separating the Vatican at the lower left from the um, rest of the city. Uh, the infrastructure of Rome is, ancient Rome is in evidence with four bridges. Uh, this is Renaissance, but that's Roman, that's Roman, that's Roman, and that's Roman. Uh, this bridge will wash away in a few years and be called Broken Bridge thereafter, but it was a vital link between Trastevere and the rest of the city. Um, we see, this is just to focus in on some of the, uh, the Tiber Island, the bridge that will break, uh, the intermixing of small, very cramped housing with the occasional Roman temple, in this case an Ionic temple, which has been made into a church, or over here, a round temple made into a church. Ne near this early Christian basilica here, you might see what seems like first like a little smiley face, uh, which is the famous uh, mouth of truth, the Boca della Verita, which you find today inside the Baroque porch of this uh, church. Um, you get some sense of how the crowded quarters of Trastevere and the riverbank give way to wild, uh, sometimes unplanted, sometimes vineyards, where the ruins seem to loom up over empty countryside, but still within the walls of the ancient city. If one walked into the northern gate, the Porta del Popolo, through walls that survived from the 280s, or except in a few places where they were renewed in the Renaissance, and came upon this large piazza, we'll, we'll see for a second later, 
Caravaggio paintings that are back here in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo. But ahead of you, after the obelisk, you'd see a kind of like a goose foot of three uh, streets radiating out. If we follow the middle street, here we are, the Via del Corso, all the way down, very, very straight street, we get to the Capitoline Hill. And from the map, you can see it's still unfinished. Of course, Michelangelo has already installed his base for the statue of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, already there's an oval around him. Uh, one of the three buildings has been done, the famous Palace of the Conservators. But the other building here hasn't been finished at all. It's still medieval, except for the staircase and fountains in front of it. Uh, it will be finished just five years after the map has been published. And on the other side, with a third of Michelangelo's planned palaces, is there's still nothing. There's a huge drop between the church of the Araceli and the piazza. Uh, horses that had really just in the previous generation been found, giant Castor Pollux uh, horsemen have been put on the balustrade, and two huge trophies, which we know as the trophies of Marius, famous from Piranesi's rendering of them, have been put on the balustrade. So we see an unfinished Capitoline, an arch of Septimius Severus, the forum behind it, the Colosseum, of course, the great monument, uh, medieval church, the Quattro Coronati, an aqueduct or two. But basically, we see the populous part of the city turning into the wild parts of the city, the green, the disabitato, as one scholar has called it. Now, that disabitato had been given shape just five or six years before the map by a great network of roads laid out by a builder pope, Sixtus V. Um, the pope, or the Franciscan pope, a very dynamic, very strong-willed pope who raised the obelisks again, the four great obelisks, uh, who laid out the Via Sistino, Via Felice, named uh, his first name was Felice, so it could be named after him, leading to his favorite church, Santa Maria Maggiore, and beyond to the Lateran crossing a slightly older street, which was the Villa Street of Rome, the Via Pia. Or other streets connected the great basilicas, uh, or the Colosseum, or San Lorenzo out here was connected. And you, uh, the rhetoricians of the day would think of this as a star of streets radiating out from the Temple of the Virgin, like a star over the Virgin. So there's a lot of um, rhetorical overlay on this. Uh, in downtown Rome, back in the crowded areas of the city, some areas of flooding and ill fame, flood control was not achieved until the middle or the end of the 19th century. And often these areas were full of water when there was an overflow, like Florence in 1966, and all of the disastrous consequences that came from that. But we can see the tiny houses being edged aside and displaced by, for instance, this great counter-reformational church that I'll dwell on a little bit, Santa Maria in Vallicella. You can see what I like to call the arteries of Rome, the arterial system of streets that are hardly the straight streets of Renaissance planning. On the contrary, they curve and fork, and then fork again, and then fork again. And you have a kind of arteries turning into capillaries that feed the old city. One of the uh, other churches that will be uh, an engine of change, the Jesuit church, the Jesu, you can see here more or less finished, its facade just built, or kind of built. Uh, it's cupola finished, but the convent or novitiate of the, uh, the house of the Jesu, the Casa Professa, isn't yet built. 
all of these little churches and so forth will eventually give way to an enormous Jesuit residence around it, and the whole area will be transformed. Uh, palaces are engines of change as well. Um, we'll be seeing the Farnese Palace, which here looks like a great cube uh, in a minute uh, for the Karachi. But you can see it's not only a palace, but it's got a large piazza laid out in front of it, bulldozed houses which make open space that's a complement to the importance of the owner. And uh, looking through the map, we find unfinished palaces too. This one, in a decade after the map, will become the great Palazzo Borghese. But here it's unfinished. The courtyard's still open. Old houses waiting to be demolished until the Borghese would build their palace right down to the riverfront here. Um, looking at the fabric of the city from the air, we see, of course, this huge shape left over throughout the Middle Ages. It's the stadium of the Emperor Domitian. We're in the 90, about 90 AD, 91 AD. You can see it's the horseshoe-like top and flat bottom, which are characteristic of the Greek form of a stadium. Now, it lasted through the Middle Ages, and its steps were visible in the Renaissance, but it gradually succumbed to not so much decay as building, as development. And palaces went up all along it with baronial towers uh, occasionally, a great church would face inside, or over here, a tiny little church, which we'll see later, facing outside. And water was brought to the piazza by aqueducts. So one sees the stadium becoming uh, a public, a civic piazza. Um, and one sees on the map St. Peter's. St. Peter's had been begun in 1505 with the partial demolition of Constantine's church and had gone through many architects. For a long time, it looked, as people said, more like a Roman ruin coming down than a church going up. But by the time of the map, a lot of progress had been made. Michelangelo had taken over in the 1549 and worked on the church till his death in 1564 and had finished the apses, the attic, the drum. The cupola was finished after Michelangelo's death, but had just been finished practically a year or two before the map was done. But in front, uh, the obelisk here had been moved from its position there to the center of the piazza. But you'll see a lot of strange and older buildings in front of the church. And quite squished, like an accordion that you in your mind should open out, is the nave of the old church that I'll talk about now. Now, um, this is just to bring a few unfamiliar names home to you. The original basilica was built by Constantine around 324. We don't know the exact date. The pope who will tear it down finally and replace it is Paul V Borghese, who reigns for 15 years in our period. His architect, who comes from what's now Switzerland, uh, is Carlo Moderno. And some of these phenomena, Veronica's Veil and some of these tombs, I'm going to show you now. In 1600, there were two St. Peter's. One was a fragment of the basilica begun by Constantine. And we're standing on the Vatican Hill, and you can see some of that fragment. And the other uh, was the modern mighty temple begun by Julius II and covered with a mighty dome in 1590. In theory, the demolition of the old nave was implicit from the beginning in the construction of the new. It seemed obvious. But a century had gone by, and the old nave was still standing, or at least half of it, and there was no rush to eliminate it. What survived of old St. Peter's had immense historical and liturgical value. It was destined to last for a century longer than the parts destroyed by Bramante. 
and it was full of life. For instance, we know that in the holy year of 1575, about a dozen masses, papal masses, took place in a protected altar, altar zone in the new church, right in here, while in the old church, 47,000 masses were said uh, on its many altars. A rich harvest of indulgences was available in the old church. Palladio, the architect, but also a guidebook writer, gives us an estimate that you could get, uh, get 6,048 years off purgatory per day, doubled and redoubled on special feasts, especially if you walked up all the steps on your knees and did all the things. If you maxed it out, 6,048 times 2 or times 4, depending on the feast. So although eternity was improbable for the old nave, in 1600, few thought it imminent. Then came the election of Paul V. Age 52, young and dynamic. High on his list was the completion of St. Peter's. He appointed a commission, he consulted experts, he held a competition, he chose an architect, and down it came. But he was extremely careful to save the relics, and in fact, to avoid accusations of irreverence towards early Christianity, he had them translated in great processions with enormous care and masses said left and right. The most famous relic of the old church was Veronica's veil the first um, image not made by human hands that it said at the procession to Calvary by the pious woman who held the cloth over Christ's face. And uh, it was preserved in an iron-clad cage on top of its old altar in the old church, iron-clad and locked, triple-locked, because these things were extremely valuable and it was considered sacred. To, it was considered not such a terrible thing to steal. I mean, it was a bad thing to get caught at, but. It was a good thing to get back to your native. It was said that if you managed to steal a great relic and get it home, uh, the relic wanted to travel with you, it, it was said. <laughs> so, uh, here's the old nave in a wonderful drawing of about this period, of about 1605. Uh, and you can see it's sealed at one end to keep out the weather, but it's full of life. Uh, Veronica is over there, but here you have Innocent VIII, the late uh, Quattrocento Pope, uh, from Genoa, who brought the holy lance of Longinus from the crucifixion scene from Constantinople to Rome, and he sat on his tomb with that lance. Over here you have Pius II, the Pope of uh, Pienza, the Sienese Pope, who had the head of St. Andrew brought from Petros in Greece, and he's sitting there with the head of St. Andrew. And these two Quattrocento Popes fully expected to sit there with their great relics until the trumpet of the last judgment sounded. Little did they think that in a century, the whole thing would be gone and they would be moved. Uh, Innocent VIII is now in the church and you can find him if you look hard enough. Uh, Pius II went to another church, San Andrea della Valle. Um, now, uh, the ghost that hovers over St. Peter's is Michelangelo. He died in 1564, so he's very much out of the way. 1564 is a good year to remember because it's his death, but also the birth of Shakespeare, the birth of Galileo. Two years later is the birth of Baglione. Three years later, the birth of Monteverdi. So a lot of the characters whom we're seeing in this celebration are, that's a watershed year. But his plan was the smallest of all of the Renaissance churches. We think of St. Peter's as very big, but he shrank it. One of his critics said, if he shrinks it anymore, we'll have to call it not St. Peter's, but San Pietrino, the little church. In any case, it was, as you can see in his vision, a centralized church 
with four equal arms. One, two, three, four, and a dome at the top. Now, the problem with centralized churches is that they really don't need a facade. If you look at Leonardo da Vinci's sketches, marvelous thumbnail sketches of the 1490s for centralized churches, where do you put a facade? I mean, a door, yes, uh, but not a facade. Or as one uh, writer said, such churches are tutta facciata. They're all facade. But the problem with St. Peter's is, is that, and if you look at St. Peter's from the back, you used to be able to go to the back of the, not inside Vatican City, but outside. Now a building has been built here, but sadly. But you see Michelangelo's apses, his attic, more or less, and, and his dome, and then the later cupola that's been built. And you get a sense of everything rising out of this undulating body. Where would you put a facade? Michelangelo died without giving us much of an idea of a facade. This fresco in Florence, although it's after his death, gives you a pretty good idea of what it was like. He's telling the pope, uh, build it, that's him of course, build the church and so forth, but where's the facade? Well, he hasn't actually gotten around to it. The one sketch that he left is incredibly sloppy. Uh, he never thought about these things until he really had to. A fresco in the Vatican Library shows us what alleges to be his idea. He would have, if we believe the fresco, put this pantheon portico in front on giant monolithic columns and then behind it had a kind of screen of columns, and then you finally get into the church, right, right here. So he would have given it something of a facade, but not changed it too much from the centralized plan. Um, now, uh, uh, there were a lot of things wrong with Michelangelo's church. Uh, there was no sacristy, so where do you change? There was no belfry. What about the bells that summoned people? He said, well, put them in these little domes, but they, they couldn't be heard there. Where does the Pope bless the crowds from Easter? Well, there's no balcony of any sort. Uh, this door leads right into the church. Um, uh, in the old church went this far and was full of tombs. Even some kings of medieval e England were buried there. What do you do with all those tombs? And what about the fact that the sacred ground is left open to the air if you build a central church? All of these things were wrong. Uh, one faction said, well, leave the old nave standing, never touch it. Uh, another faction said, well, you could build a church which had a long foot, an oblongus pez, pace, so to speak, with all the auxiliary. Uh, and then it was the pope who said, I want something magnificent. And he told Carlo Moderno, his architect, give a, make some peace with those conservative factions, but give us the most magnificent church you can. And Carlo Moderno, I must say, did the best he could. He, this is Michelangelo, and he added a long foot, as you can see. And he gave you a choir and a sacristy. And he made some insulation between the door and the, now you enter here, but you have a long loggia, which is kind of a preparation for the sacred experience of entering and imitates the loggia in the old church. And then you finally enter through one of five doors. So it's a, it's a subtle compromise in a way, trying to make everyone happy. And therefore, as you can imagine, it made nobody happy. Uh, it, this 18th century view shows the nave as it is today, all covered with precious marbles and Bernini sculptures and so forth. But Moderna was rather subtle. All of this would be white plaster. It would have contrasted a lot with the very colorful, uh, revetted marble central church. He would have made a point, you see this, uh, he would have made a point of it being an addition and so forth. He was not really trying to change uh, to, uh, 
but, but he did, in effect, change the church by giving us this enormous, enormous nave. If you go to the church today and look at the floor, there are bronze markers, which are kind of like the league statistics. You walk in a few feet and you say, well, there's as long as the Cathedral of uh, Milan. Oh, there's West, Westminster Cathedral. Oops, you know, Win Westminster Abbey. And there's Lincoln Cathedral and so on. And obviously, St. Peter's is outdoing them all. But that wouldn't have been the case had Michelangelo's church been built. Um, Moderno strategy, given the opposition and criticism from all quarters, was to build the facade quickly and then fill in the nave behind it. And he had armies at work. There were, uh, oof, I think, something like 350 masons at work on the facade at one time, often with candlelight, 650 working on the barrel vault of the nave. He was a superb craftsman and a marvelous uh, cutter of travertine. And uh, so the quality of the facade is incredibly high. I'll show you a clean version in a minute. Uh, but the size is uh, incredible. Um, but what is, uh, it's important, I think, to, uh, the St. Peter's facade has had a bad press, and why? It was criticized by Michelangelo's nephew, who was still alive, uh, as a violation of the old master's design. It was criticized by a Florentine cardinal, Barberini, who became Urban VIII, uh, Pope. It was criticized, and that criticism passed down to Bernini, who all his life said terrible things about the facade, said it should be pulled down and rebuilt. And in this climate of criticism, it never really had the heroic press that I think it deserved. So I think we should stop for a second and consider some of the good points of the facade. First is that um, uh, he came to grips with the prob problem of the giant column. Michelangelo was a great fan of giant monolithic columns, but he could never have built columns that big. Moderno did by the subtle piecing together of travertine that you, so when it was finished and all of the little holes filled with stucco, you would hardly have noticed, only a detective would have noted that that wasn't made of a single shaft of stone. He fits them into pockets and they look like they could rotate if you had a big enough wrench, so to speak. Um, uh, Second, Moderno had much more a sense of the importance of architectural relics than Michelangelo had ever shown. He reused 20 columns from the old basilica. They're here. We have one, two, there's two thick there, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and then if you went to the side here, that's where Moderno's facade originally ended, you'd find up to the 20. Now these are enormous monolithic columns of Greek and other precious marbles. Constantine looted them from some important building to build his church. And they give you a kind of man-sized measure. You can touch them and you can feel how big they are, but then you see how big the real columns are. Without them, there'd be no way of grasping the incredible dimensions of the larger columns. And also he saved these incredibly important relics. Um, inside uh, the nave, he saved the holy door that was there. He saved all the doors. He reused them. He put uh, inscriptions on the wall. I don't have a slide of this one, but this was carved under Charlemagne in Aachen and sent to Pope Hadrian the first in 795, and it reads, "In tears, I, Charles Char Charlemagne, have written these lines for you, my father and my sweet love." 
And there was enough sense on Moderno's part to save these precious things and frame them in marble frames. So the entranceway, the atrium, becomes a kind of reliquary for some of the most sacred things in old St. Peter's. But Moderno was also, uh, my third point, uh, pretty good at the flattery needed to be a Baroque architect, especially with someone like Paul V Borghese. There's no shortage of Borghese eagles and dragons. They're his heraldic family beasts on the facade. Uh, in fact, they're everywhere on the facade. It's often been noted that the inscription, which begins the Prince of the Apostles, well, the Prince of the Apostles is over here, whereas Paul V Borghese is here. Uh, there's a certain setting aside of the Prince of the Apostles. It's been noticed. Um, but Moderno was very good at giving you signs of the liturgical experience that you would have inside. There are mitres and cruets and all of the symbols of the papal-led liturgy. There's an amazing relief, not by Moderno, but by a man called Bonvicino, that shows Christ giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter, the foundation for the papal uh, authority, it was said. Now, when you look up at this from below, you see, oh my god, that's life-size marble sculpture. But this is revealing. When the facade was being cleaned, a great crane was put up there, and my estimate is that, uh, th unless this person is unusually short, which I don't think is the case, these are twice life size. And you get some sense of the vastness of the facade by trying to impose the human scale on it. Um, in any case, here we are with the facade as Moderno finished it. Now I'm going to show you what Moderno did here, and it ended here. And it was just this part in the middle uh, then Paul V said, wait a minute, it's not big enough. And he made him add bases of bell towers, which I'll touch upon in the very last uh, few seconds of the lecture. But at the moment, I'll leave it at that. Um, the cleaning revealed color in an amazing way. The green came out. The red of the uh, background color came out. And basically, what we have is a huge setting, a stage set, for the elevation of a single small human being uh, into majestic grandeur before the eyes of crowds that can number as high as 100 or 120,000 people at the Easter blessing. Now, another engine of change, much smaller scale, of course, is in the heart of downtown Rome. And I'm going to take the example of the Church of the Vallicella, the Little Valley, or Santa Maria, or better, St. Gregory and St. Mary in the Little Valley which is the church for the followers of Philip Neri, who are called oratorians after their musical devotion called oratory. Uh, you all know Handel's Messiah is an oratorio. In any case, this genre began with this group of very musical people. Now, um, Philip Neri is one of the most appealing of all of there, There's the Vallicella there from the Tempesta map. You can see it uh, crowding. It, it's not so much uh, houses built against it. It's crowding out all these houses and eventually will we'll, we'll ensure their demolition as it expands and expands. Philip Neri is one of the most sympathetic characters of the Counter-Reformation. He's mystic, but he's also down to earth. He's musical and emotional, but he's also gifted with a great sense of humor. And he's a lover of practical jokes. He's the saint of festivita, festivity, of gaiety, of eccentric joviality, but also of purity and goodness of heart. 
sitting in his confessional, as he did for hours and hours for all his life, he could smell impurity halfway across the church, which makes me think Caravaggio was actually not patronized by Philip Neri, but by someone else in the church. But in any case, um, doctors affirmed that after mystic experiences in the catacombs as a young man, his heart had physically expanded. There was an autopsy afterwards. His, everyone could put their hand on his chest and feel the heat of this great, great heart, which was physically twice the size of most people's heart. Hence, his symbols are the lily of chastity and the flaming heart. Um, he had a wonderful motto, which I really like. Um, Spurn the world. Spare nere mundum. Despise the world. Well, you know, here we're in the usual world of Puritans everywhere, you know. Uh, but he went on. Spare nere neminem. Despise no one. So we're in a friendlier world than most of those Puritans uh, who despise everyone and every, everything. But we go on. Despise thyself. Spare nere So See, here we are back in the world of self-chastisement and all of that. But the last line is wonderful. Spurnere say spurney, which is a very <laughs> complex grammar, but it means stop all of this spurning business. <laughs> Get over it. Get back to human life in a way. And I, I love this playing with uh, counter-reformational austerity. You would never have Cotton Mather giving you the fourth line, put it that way. Uh, these basilicas are very complex things. Uh, I went up to a height nearby to show you what the Vallicella looks like uh, globally, so to speak. Uh, there's a long nave, very, very wide for preaching. Um, there are chapels along the side. We'll see some of them later. There's a facade like the Wild West, which is much, 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 it's much more tailored to the urban dimension than to the church itself. There's a transept, which will have very special chapels and very well lit as well. Uh, there's an apse, which will contain the most sacred things in the church, like a holy icon, in this case, a holy icon of the Virgin. And then there's a cupola where you can uh, eventually have a frescoed cycle of, say, the Virgin rising into heaven or something like that. So you get a sense of the parts. They're not like Michelangelo's central churches. They're churches made up of parts for different liturgical functions. This wonderful drawing I took from the archives of the church shows you the Vallicella after it had been built, more or less. It was a tiny, terribly poor little medieval basilica that Pope Gregory the 13th gave to the followers of Philip Neri. Um, hence, they decided to call it St. Gregory as well as St. Mary, a little flattery in there. Uh, it was about that big. Instead of restoring it, they rebuilt it so it has chapels on all of the sides, five chapels, and then two more here, and then one chapel there. And eventually, the painting cycle will be the mysteries of the Virgin, let's say the mysteries of the Rosary, going around counterclockwise. So you'll have the birth of the Virgin, and then the presentation of the Virgin in the temple, and then the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, and we'll go down through the birth of Christ and everything, and then the crucifixion will get over here, and, or maybe here, and then the deposition from the cross over here, and then we'll get uh, the Pentecost and so forth, and finally we'll get uh, the assumption of Christ, the ascension of the Virgin, and the assumption of Christ into heaven. So you can see these mysteries, and although private uh, donors would take a chapel and endow it, bury their family members in it, and get the right to decorate it, and even pick the painter or reject the painter that they had picked. There's a lot of that sort of thing. But nonetheless, they were bound always by the subject matter that was given to them so the church would have a unity as you went all the way around. You also notice, by the way, how, how, how tight it is in here, clustering. 
the, the little streets, I mean, it's sort of as big as it could go without closing that street. And then eventually, as I'll show you at the very end, it does close that street and builds over these dozens, uh, these 60 houses that are here. This is the sacristy. Uh, and uh, it's a very, very important space for music because, as I discovered from some wonderful documents in the archives, the famous first oratorio, the dialogue between the body and the soul of Emilio de Cavalieri, one of the really foundation stones of early Baroque music, was performed in this sacristy. Uh, many people had thought the church or somewhere, but this is fine in the space. And you would get into it from the street like that and go back out. Now, the most important thing in the church was an icon of the Virgin. Um, not particularly old and not particularly beautiful, but a miracle working icon. You can see her in a crescent moon here, more or less, and the Virgin and Child surrounded by angels. It was painted on the wall of a house. Philip Neary said, rebuild the church, but don't do anything to the wall of the house for the time being. At one point, the Virgin came to him and said, the timbers of your holding up the whole church are falling down, uh, but I'm holding them up. He had a vision of the Virgin flying through the air, holding. He went out into the church, woke up real quick, went out, and my God, the timbers were about to fall had them propped up. So she was miracle working and very benign towards the oratoriums. And obviously she was to be put in a very special position in the apse of the church. But she's all over the church. When the facade is finally built by the famous Chesey family from Todi, uh, and here they're good enough not, Chesey is over here and the Bishop of Todi is in the middle and the date, and at least they don't put the man's name in the middle. But one thing I want to show you is, uh, the image in the middle of the facade is uh, the Virgin of the Vallicella uh, in a huge stone version. And what looks like brains here are clouds. So it's, it's the vision being elevated into the clouds. Uh, the, pardon me, the, it's the physical icon that was on the wall of a house elevated into the clouds with angels adoring it. So that you can see how important this icon is to the... Let's walk into the church. As I showed you on the plan, you should expect side chapels. You should expect some splendor. These beautiful hangings go up once a year, so they're ephemeral. And actually, Philip Neri wanted a kind of white church everywhere, but color would be allowed in the chapel. So you have general whiteness, and then color added by the wealthy donors who took over the chapels. And as we look in them, the color is absolutely splendid. The last of the chapels, the coronation of the Virgin in heaven, with a painting by Cavaliere d'Arpino, but when one looks at the marble, the green antique, and the floor, and the uh, sculptures of the 1590s period on either side, it's an absolutely exquisite, wealthy, interesting chapel. Um, some of the painters called in by these, not by the oratorians as such, but by the private families, are among the best in early, Renaissance, early Baroque Rome. Federico Barocci of Urbino in 1588 sends this beautiful mystic painting of the visitation, the Virgin and Elizabeth, uh, with the child leaping in her womb. Um, and it's the kind of painting in front of which Philip Neri wept, because he was so moved by the combination of exquisite beauty and piety, something th qualities which don't necessarily always go together in religious art. Uh, my slide is bad for the most wonderful Barocci painting in the world, the presentation of the Virgin in the temple, uh, uh, which shows the young Virgin up on the top of the steps. It's a combination of perspective and all of the virtuoso knowledge of the painter, but at the same time, the low life, the offerings of sheep and 
chickens and uh, birds in a basket, the straw hat of peasants is so exquisitely done. You can see that it's a, these are the art galleries of early Baroque Rome. Once one got a commission to go into a church, one was on public display and there could be talk back and forth. Just to show you what happens in the cycle of chapels that go around towards the Caravaggio that I'll get to in a minute, in these relatively mediocre paintings of around the 1590s, one has Christ crucified, one has Christ, this is Pope Solomon, I think, Christ deposed or taken down from the cross. But then in the second chapel on the right, one has perhaps the only Caravaggio painting of the six monumental chapels that he did that was never rejected, criticized, substituted, and so forth. A painting accepted by everyone as truly fitting the, in both monumentality, beauty, and piety, the occasion. Christ is being taken into the tomb, and the slab of the tomb pulled down becomes almost like the altar slab. The very aged virgin spreads her hands. You can see, uh, gosh, over here is one. My slide isn't wide enough, but her other hand is over here, as though she's an Oron's figure from an early Christian catacomb. The three Marys, or at least two of the three Marys, cry aloud with their grief. Uh, and John helps with his very touching hand, feeling the wound, helping you, the spectator, feel some of this empathetic piety as they bring Christ towards the grave. It was a, a painting copied by many painters. The only Caravaggio to be stolen by the French with the Napoleonic uh, seizures, brought to Paris. And when it was brought back after Waterloo, it was brought back to Rome, but not to the church. So it was brought to the Vatican, which I guess was felt to be fine. But now, as one goes in the church, one finds a copy, a rather dark copy. But it's still important to go to the church, not only to see the sequence, but to see how the stuccos and the other works in the chapel echo and reinforce the basic message of the painting. You see here the white cloth which Christ will be buried in. This is, of course, the Holy Shroud, the famous Shroud of Turin. And when you look at the stuccos on top of the chapel, you see the Shroud of Turin is uh, a very great object of pilgrimage uh, in the period of 1575 when it was moved to Turin and then the 1580s and 1590s up to the point of Caravaggio's painting, which is 1502. So you can see, so, and, and then you see uh, the burial and so forth. So you see so much else when you actually go to the chapel. Um, among the copyists was Rubens. Um, um, Rubens did an early copy, which is very good. Uh, it's not meant to be a faithful, totally faithful copy. It doesn't have the Virgin's outstretched hands and so forth. It's meant to get in the spirit, into the psyche of the, but it's very close and very good. And then I discovered just a, two weeks ago in the Courthold Gallery in uh, London, this marvelous Rubens from 1616. So Rubens has gone back to Antwerp. It's 14 years after Caravaggio. And yet, uh, of course, the lights are a little awkward, but. What can you do in museums? And look what he's done. He's made the slab into a kind of, almost like a precipice, and the body is falling over into it. And the Magdalene tries to pull the feet back as she's anointing with her hair. It's a sense of absolutely heightened grief. The robes and the clothes of the ladies are shorn to shreds in their plangent grief. Uh, so one sees Rubens being nourished on this painting years after he left Rome. The last person I want to talk about in the church is Rubens himself. 
uh, between 1606 and 1608, just, just before he went, he had been in Rome for about five years, and just before he went back to his native Antwerp, never to return, he was given the commission of the high altar. Now this is very big and a young, unknown Flemish painter. Well, it was the influence of a wealthy patron who trusted him, a Monsignore with 300 scudi, a high price to throw around, who convinced the oratorians to take him. But they took him on their own terms. They gave him the subject matter. Now, you might remember I said the apse was to be the birth of the Virgin. The oratorians by then were saying, no, we want more early Christian saints. And so they picked St. Gregory the Great, after whom the church was in part named. Gregory the Great. And they put him under a triumphal arch. Uh, and in the background, you see the ruins of ancient Rome, as though the triumphal arch itself is falling down. And next to him, they put a Christian, Domitilla, who is the Christian saint par excellence for the oratorian. She's said to be the daughter of Domitian, although this is a bit mythic, but a beautiful uh, lady whose, whose profile is probably taken from an ancient cameo, is the way Rubens worked. Uh, and two soldiers, uh, again, uh, martyrs uh, who have been, Maurus and Papianus, who have been associated with this team, so to speak. And then as Rubens works through his sketches and his ideas, it gets more and more complex. Gregory's looking at something, okay, but what is Gregory looking at? Uh, in this further oil uh, sketch, it's not the altar yet, we see that Gregory is looking up at the arch where angels have now planted the Madonna of the Vallicella, that precious icon that I talked about that was shown also on the front of the facade. So he's thinking of a painting with an icon within the painting. Domatilla gets to, I mean, she's gone to the, uh, you know, she's, she's outfitted herself with tremendously beautiful silks. The Roman soldiers get to be more Roman as they put on this armor and this sort of fox skins and leopard skins and so forth. And now we have other people. Domatilla had two eunuchs who were martyred with her, and they are Nereus and Achilleus. They were buried in a church that a cardinal, Baronius, who was an oratorian cardinal, uh, was taking care of near the out outskirts of Rome. So it's getting far more populated. Uh, this is a somewhat, this is the same painting, but a better slide of it gives us some idea of the tremendous. Gregory, who was all white before, now is getting these unbelievably beautiful embroideries and so forth, and the Madonna of the Vallicellas. You can see how beautifully it's being painted by Rubens. But then, after Rubens does an altarpiece, something like that, he says to the Oratorian Fathers, wait a minute, I'm unhappy. Light is somehow reflecting too much off this painting. And when you saw the light reflecting off my slide in the courthold, you'd say, well, I can understand. He takes down and offers at his own expense to redo the painting in the form of three huge paintings done on slate, like a blackboard. Because slate will reflect light more softly or less, less glittery, less shining reflection. So, uh, and also he's getting more surface. His exposure in this church is unbelievable at the end of the process. Uh, on the left side, in a separate painting, he'll put Gregory with uh, Maurus and Papianus, the two saints. And on the other side, he'll put Domatilla with their eunuchs, her eunuchs, uh, Nereo and Achilleo, and they look like sort of goodly eunuchs would look, you know. Uh, and then in the middle, uh, he has no earthly figures at all. The Madonna of the Vallicella is held aloft by angels, 
surrounded by other angels down here, and in a special contraption that's only put into use once a year, uh, the Madonna that Rubens paints in this beautiful style can be lowered through a slit behind the main painting, and one sees behind it the real Madonna of the Vallicella. So the, uh, what we would think of as something worth going miles to see is hidden in, in favor of revealing to us this miracle work of icon, which in, in, the, in the museum world you wouldn't exactly go miles to see. But we're not in the museum world, that's the point. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a better view of the whole uh, altarpiece as it looks today. Um, with Rubens leaving in 1608, going back to Antwerp, his mother had died and he wants to get back home, a major figure leaves the scene. But other major figures are still at work. Um, I'd like now to dwell on Anibale Caracci uh, in the Farnese Gallery. Um, Anibale comes from a family of artisan artists, you might say, in Bologna. They're very proud of their plebeian origins. The father was a tailor. Early paintings are of things like the butcher shop, market stalls. Uh, uh, and yet when Anibale moves to Rome as a man in his 30s, uh, he's given one of the most prestigious commissions uh, imaginable. A cardinal's gallery, the gallery in the Farnese Palace that was to be frescoed by Cardinal Eduardo Farnese. Now, the Farnese Palace uh, is a complex thing. It, uh, I'm not going to give you the whole history, but basically it was to be finished by having a kind of bridge between the left and the right wings. But at a certain point, bridge and the loggia going to the garden, people thought, no, that's wasting too much space. And the bridge was filled up, and several rooms were built beyond the bridge. And one of them is a long, thin room. It's, in fact, this length, more or less. Uh, that's the Farnese Gallery. Now, the gallery was to be frescoed, but by this painter. Uh, Anibale Caracci, this is the bean eater. It's on the cover of Italy's most long-selling cookbook. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not just a bean eater. He's also eating bread and leeks and wine and some sort of chops and spinach or something like that. But is the, a rough, crude painting, but a marvel of art at the same time. It's now in the little-visited Colonna Gallery in Rome, but worth stopping at. Worth looking at the cocky peasant with his pretense to dandyism, uh, but his crude straw hat, unshaven, the filthy clothes, the cheapest possible pottery with acid wine and bad bread and all of this. And it's as though Anibale is saying, you're a sloppy eater. I'm a sloppy painter. I like you. <laughs> and uh, there's something marvelous charge about this painting that no one misses, I think, when they see it. Uh, but Anibale, as he matured, and came to absorb the, the style of Correggio, especially in uh, Parma, could paint the most moving uh, of uh, sacral, sacred compositions. His Pietà, for instance, shows the dead Christ uh, been, in, taken off the virgin's lap. Uh, and you're meant to feel the pains of the wounds, the black hands of the bloodless hands of the wounds. Uh, the putto here touches one of the thorns in the crown of thorn to make you feel the pain. So he's capable of religious empathy like no one else, but capable of erotic art on um, a grand scale, um, like this uh, satyr and 
uh, Venus in the uh, Pitti, uh, which is uh, probably meant for a princely cabinet, maybe the Medici cabinet or something, not meant for grand shows and public viewing, meant for very private, controlled, uncensored viewing. But to have the two in the same personality is very strange and very uh, extraordinary. Now, if you go to paint a gallery, that's to say the ceiling of a long, thin room, how, how should you do it? Well, one way is to have a kind of uh, perspectival uh, arrangement whereby architecture will point up to a vanishing point in the middle of an empty sky. And you have a vision or something like that in the sky. This is a great room of 1600 in the Vatican Palace called the Sala Clementina. We never get in now because the Pope uses this for audiences with ambassadors and so on. But uh, you can see the incredible skill of the perspectival paintings by a family called the Alberti family. But uh, Anibale Karachi chose not to do that at all. Rather than have an open sky, he gives you the fiction that a pack rat collector has so many paintings to stack, he doesn't know where to put them and puts them one on top of another. Uh, down here were ancient sculptures and niches, real ancient sculptures. And up here, he gives you the fiction of ancient paintings in real frames stacked one on top of another. And uh, it's so complex, it takes hours and hours to see these systems. You know, um, uh, he, he uses Michelangelo's idea of nudes, ignudi, from the Sistine Chapel, which is, this is from. And he, uh, if, you, if you look here, you'll see lots of ignudi and bronze medallions that are half covered by paintings. And, uh, very muscular herms that are statues, but look like they're rubbing uh, shoulders with the ignudi. So what is flesh and what is stone? There's a lot of playing on back and forth between the two. Uh, <clears throat> you get a gallery of ancient paintings, fictively speaking, superimposed on a gallery of real sculpture. Uh, this is the heady cocktail of the Farnese Gallery. It revolves around a line from uh, Virgil. Uh, omnia, I will pronounce it like an Ibele would, omnia vincit amor, love conquers all, et nos cedamus amori, and we too cede to love. And they do. The gods, uh, we here in this case is the gods, uh, they really do. Jove, lovesick for his wife for once, lovesick for his wife Juno, loosens her girdle and urges her to bed against, there's a nice color photograph, against the better advice of his Puritan eagle that's at the foot of the bed. Or, if you like, the mortal Anchises, the father of Aeneas, slips off the laced slipper, the buskin or cotorno as the writers call it, of the goddess Venus. Their offspring will be the founder of the Latin race. And so he writes here, genus unde latinum. This act is whence will come the Latin race. Hercules over here with the lion skin. Well, Hercules not with the lion skin. She has the lion skin. And she has the club. And he has the tambourine and feminine clothes. Uh, Hercules is so besotted by the Lycian queen, Omphale, that he gives her his club and the lion skin while he plays with her tambourine. And he takes up feminine pursuits like spinning wool. Somewhere around in the painting, you can see wool being spun. Well, their offspring will be 
Tyrannos, the father of the Etruscan people. So you, we don't have an inscription, but you could almost imagine one, Genus Unde Etruscum here. Uh, the great central painting, there's a nice picture of Omphale wearing the lion skin while she distracts Hercules. The central painting, so right in the middle of the vault, is a huge affair. It's the arrival of Bacchus and his bride, Ariadne, with the stars of her constellation in twin chariots, they don't have the same car, drawn by tigers and goats. Silenus, so obese and drunk, he can hardly stay on his ass without help, lurches forward, accompanied by menads, that's to say these wild women, women in a Bacchic trance who whirl and dance or carry wild animals that they've just ripped apart, you see a wild animal ripped apart, in baskets on their heads. The precious wine is shipped by air courier. If paintings had decibel levels, this one would be high between the braying of the ass, you know, uh, the roaring of the tigers, the clanging of the tambourines and the cymbals over here, uh, the screeching of horns and pipes. The whole gallery is loud and farcical. Now, if we were to picture the story of Bacchus and Ariadne, I'll just r remind you what it is. Ariadne's in love with Theseus. She's the daughter of the Minotaur, but he kills the Minotaur. It's a chance for her, and they want to run off and be happy. But she uh, wakes up and found, founds that he's left. And she goes to the shore, and he, she sees the white sails of his ship going back towards Greece. And she's left in Crete, and she's quite upset by this and weeping and very sad. And at that point, you have the lament of Ariadne. Monteverdi made uh, an opera out of Ariadne, and uh, the only thing that survives from it, which you heard, some of you heard yesterday, the lament of the nymph, is from that stage of this story. But then Bacchus arrives, and he marries Ariadne. He finds her on the shore. It's uh, a second chance for Ariadne, and she actually becomes not only a goddess, but a constellation up there, and you see the star. So that's why the Lamento della Ninfa of Monteverdi is part of a composition that's appropriate for a wedding. It was composed for a Gonzago wedding in Mantua in 1608. So why would you have someone lamenting like that at a wedding? Well, because it's only part uh, of the final happy ending. And so too, the whole gallery seems to have been frescoed for a wedding. Not the cardinal, obviously, but his brother, Duke Ranuccio Farnese, married an Aldobrandini princess. And when the Aldobrandini came to visit, this is the farcical side, by the way, of the gallery. You have these masks all over it grinning, and uh, you have uh, footy that seemed to have had too much wine. You have these terms where they're, they look so lifelike, uh, and yet their arms are broken, like happens so often to ancient sculpture. Well, when the Aldobrandini visited, they would have known that Anibale had been thinking about Titians in their collection. In 1598, these Titians were stolen from the duchy of uh, the Este court at Ferrara, for which they had been painted and brought to Rome and were in the Aldobrandini collection. And Titian is showing us the same story. Bacchus, in a more athletic way, arrives with cheetahs now rather than tigers for Ariadne. And you see these figures uh, running around, tearing animals apart. You see Silenus on his ass uh, and so forth. Here's the drunken part of the Bacchanals. But you see Anibale putting all of this together. You even have, of course, you, you have the putto that just can't take it, you know. Uh, 
And so the cardinal and the bride would have seen uh, the fact that an Ibele was vying with, maybe, who knows, outdoing the Titians in their own collection. And there's a beautiful view, a view of this incredibly beautiful uh, Pecrat uh, assembly of ancient, fictive ancient paintings. Balione, our guy, says of this, for sheer inventiveness, an imaginative caprice with nudes, short stories, and grander narratives, this was the height of perfection. Everyone, no matter how malicious or jealous a person might be on seeing it, would be forced to admit that this was one of the most beautiful works that imagination has invented and painting expressed in our time. But Aníbali was badly rewarded. The 500 scudi that the cardinal gave him uh, were more like a tip than a payment. He uh, was not a good person in society, uh, when courtiers were spouting art theory all around him, all he could say was, I paint with my, I speak with my hands, his painting. But he went into, his, his ego was fragile, he went into a nervous breakdown and under pressure from which he never really came out. The last years of his life were spent in um, his students trying to make him paint, a painting a week or something like that, but it didn't work. At some terrible point he fled to Naples, but he came right back as fever ridden. Uh, a doctor visited and he said, my good doctor, this time the gears of the clock have been broken. It will not chime again. The hours are all finished. He died in 1609, age 49, and all the virtuosi of Rome gave, gave him a splendid funeral in the Pantheon, as he wished, next to Raphael, as he followed in life and death. We can take leave of Anibale Caracci with a painting from his last year, and it's known in two versions, one in Florence and one in St. Petersburg, which is this version. Since the artist, in the, it's sort of like a painting of a painting, so it's a portrait of an Ibele as a younger, maybe fresher man, but it's strange. Um, in the back is an artist's dummy or mannequin, the kind of thing you throw drapery over to paint it. And then in the front we have a cat and a dog, and the palette hung up as though no more work is possible, while you, the visitor, are greeted with this strange triple stare all lust for life seems gone, and the spring is truly broken. People say that pets inherit the psychoses of their masters, and I think this poor dog certainly did. Uh, I, I will not hold you too much longer, but uh, I would like to get through Caravaggio, and I think you would too. The Contarelli Chapel of Caravaggio comes uh, in his uh, early 30s. He was known as a still life painter, exquisite still life painter. This one in Milan is a miracle of balance. The, you can almost taste the soft figs, the grapes, the apples with their wormholes. It seems to say ripeness is everything, seize the day. Um, and later Caravaggio will incorporate this kind of thing into still lives where ripeness is all applies to the young Bacchus figure in his dirty sheet on a dirty mattress somehow pulling loose a knot and offering you the glass of ruby red wine. Um, this offering oneself comes over into beautiful portraits of musicians. Dear late lamented Franca Camiz studied, it was a music musicologist as well as an art historian, studied these wonderful paintings where the spirit of longing and amorous pleasure, uh, she even noted how they were singing in the appropriate way for the madrigals. And the music, in this case, a madrigal by Arkadelt, can almost always be read in his paintings. But there's a strange side to Caravaggio as well. This early painting of a boy, a fairy-like boy, with a uh, little rose, rose behind his ear, uh, 
a little undraped, is looking at a beautiful still life of roses, but somehow as he's reached for the fruit, thinking it would be all sweet, his hand is bitten by a lizard, and he pulls back uh, in a sort of pleasure-pain motif, gasping, saying, oh, well, this is all very harmless at this level of lizards and boys, but it's uh, a combo of pleasure and pain that will get grow into a great crescendo in Caravaggio's work. The Contarelli Chapel in the French church of St. Luigi de Francesi, uh, the patron died before Caravaggio was born, but he left the money for this chapel, his name, being French, was Mathieu Quantrel, like the liqueur. And um, Mathieu wanted a, church, a chapel dedicated to St. Matthew. And although Caravaggio didn't get the commission until 1598-99, the Matthew idea was central. And so Caravaggio did uh, three paintings. We'll get to this in a minute. But one on the left of the calling of St. Matthew and one on the right of the martyrdom of St. Matthew. Now, the calling of St. Matthew is one of the most laconic scenes in all of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus passed forth from hence. Uh, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So, I mean, what are you going to make out of that? Well, Caravaggio sets the action in this penumbra. A crowd of money men, see the money on the table, accompanied by a pair of overdressed bravos, sit around. Christ walks into the room, or maybe the alley, and with a gesture worthy of the Adam, creation of Adam on the Sistine ceiling, says, follow me. What follows? Confusion follows from this ledge. Whom does he mean? Does he mean the dim-witted person at the end of the room? Look who he's pointing to. He seems to point to the dim-witted person there, who has only eyes for money, or maybe the man who needs glasses for money, glasses almost as a symbol of non-sight and lack of vision. But it's after the confusion of the spectator, too, you finally realize who he does mean. He mean, do you mean me, says the elderly man, well-dressed. Do you mean me? He does. And he gets up and follows him. Now, the painting was often imitated by Caravaggio's followers. These two are by Terbruggen, the Utrecht painter, wonderful Utrecht painter, goes back to Holland. and. Uh, and you can see how he's a little more literal. He says, uh, Christ says, do you mean, follow me? And Matthew says, do you mean me? And, and you can tell these people are not part of the action. They're part of the money. And he follows him. Or here, you know, Christ comes in and says, you know, follow me. He doesn't mean him. He means him and so on. And, you know, Terbruggen is extremely clear and precise. But when we look back, we see that Caravaggio wants you to be confused a little bit because such scenes are confusing. And then fi finally you see who it is. You see it is... It is me. Come follow me. The martyrdom of St. Matthew on the other side is uh, very action-filled. Um, uh, Christ started, uh, Caravaggio started with this painting and realizing he was having trouble, he turned uh, to the other one and then came back. The auth the, uh, what's happened? Um, Matthew has a long life. He goes to Ethiopia. He lives for 33 years, builds a temple with his own hands. He's a great trusted friend of the king. He converts everybody. Then the king dies, and a terrible new king comes along. The former king's daughter is vowed to virginity in a Christian way, and the new king says, it'd be rather nice to get her. And Matthew resists, so uh, that's the cause of his death. It's like murder in the cathedral. An assassin is sent, and Caravaggio makes a point of showing us a sword which is going in for its second stab with blood dripping from it and coming from a wound in his chest. 
Uh, everyone flees as though no one will stick with him. The altar boys flee. These strange people, maybe about to be baptized here, flee as well. Uh, maybe these are uh, portraits of the king's embassy, but basically in the background, uh, in the foreground, you have an angel who hasn't yet learned to fly, as Howard Hibbert so beautifully says, reaching down with his palm of martyrdom. And in the background, you have the self-portrait of Caravaggio. So often, he will give us a sense of witness to violence with his self-portrait. Um, you can name three or four such paintings. Now, the Contarelli, and then the final altarpiece, this was what it looked like originally. It's Matthew writing his gospel. You know that all of the evangelists have figures. Matthew is a man or an angel, let's say, as opposed to an ox, a lion, and a bull, the others. But here, Matthew is portrayed as a dumb old man, a thick-headed, almost illiterate, who's writing Hebrew letters in his book, backwards, of course, uh, with a thick, bearish paw that can hardly move, while this beautiful epicene angel, what sex, who knows, is pushing the arm and Matthew's dirty feet protrude out into the space. And uh, Matthew looks at the test or looks at the hand and says, oh my God, I never knew, but knew what? I mean, the kind of revelation that's being shown here is very strange. And naturally, the priest rejected it. It was bought up by a collector, went to Berlin, and destroyed in the Second World War, but replaced by a dramatic and wonderful painting by Caravaggio. The angel is now counting off the generations of Christ but not quite in this intimate way. Um, the Contarelli Chapel was finished in 1602. It made a splash. The word the Romans use is noise. Federico Zuccheri, founder of the Roman Artist Academy, the Accademia di San Luca, who's famous for his advice to students, no day without a line, entered the church to see what all the noise was about. Che rumore è questo, he said. What noise is this? And he scrutinized the paintings carefully before adding, I don't see anything other than the idea of Giorgione 100 years ago. Nothing new here. He laughed his deriding laugh, turned his back, and went his way, shaking his head at all this nonsense. Now, we know of Zuccheri's visit because it was recorded by an eyewitness, a young friend of Zuccheri's, Giovanni Baglione, a real protege of the academy, uh, the hero of our show in the gallery, but usually the anti-hero of some histories of Baroque art. Baglioni was glad that somebody had seen through Caravaggio's sensationalism. Zuccheri uh, was in Baglioni's company. Baglioni, born in 1566, was five years older than Caravaggio. He was much better trained. He came from Rome, but of a Florentine family, so a good antecedents. He studied drawing. He was a fantastic draftsman. Caravaggio never could draw. He studied the antique, Caravaggio much less so. Um, he had great mentors, especially he knew the art of fresco, which Caravaggio was really bad at and then eventually never wanted to do again in his life after a bad first experience. And so in the rivalry that ensued between the two around 1600, in a funny way, Baglione should have won. Uh, he had everything going, training and skill alike, but he somehow, uh, he, in the great fresco projects around 1600, he always, is the youngest and the best. He's very proud of being the youngest person to work at the ladder and the youngest person to do an altarpiece for St. Peter's. And yet somehow it doesn't really bring him into the first rank. Here's his St. Sebastian, uh, where he's in the, his most Caravaggesque phase, this soft beauty of, Sebastian, by the way, is supposed to be an older man. Uh, he's like the, um, 
you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a general in the Roman forces in Milan. He's in charge of a large body of men. He's a kind of general Patton figure. He shouldn't be the soft, expiring boy. Um, and of course, he's not killed when he's martyred. And so the angel here, the guardian angel perhaps, is uh, on the one hand would have loved to see him martyred because that means heaven. On the other hand, takes care of him by carefully drawing the bloody arrow out. One hope it doesn't, it doesn't have a barb like the one there. Um, the rivalry, which began as an artistic rivalry, came to a head in September 1603 when Baglioni pressed charges for defamation against Caravaggio and two of his friends, Orazio Gentileschi and the architect Onario Lunghi. It resulted in the, the arrest of all three, in imprisonment, in interrogation, by the fearsome governor of Rome. It seems that some verses had been set in motion, scribbled secretly and passed from studio to studio. Baglioni did not find the verses flattering. I'll give you a recent translation by a, a scholar called Mary Velma O'Neill. Uh, Caravaggio and his friends said, Giovanni Garbage, you are a nothing. Your pictures are trivial. I want to see that you will not earn a counterfeit coin from them, so little that you cannot buy cloth or underwear. And then follow some analogies between Baglioni's drawings and toilet paper, innuendos of simultaneous lechery and incapacity, for which donkeys and mules serve as useful metaphors. And then these three verses, forgive me, painter, if I do not flatter you, because you are undeserving of the chain you wear, and you are a disgrace to painting. Now, the chain is an interesting thing because painters wore a chain of honor of gold when they became knights, uh, cavaliere. It was a great honor. And we know that Baglioni became a cavaliere in 1606. And yet here in 1603, Caravaggio and his friends are making fun of him uh, for wearing a chain. And I think what's going on is the fact he kind of jumped the gun and began alleging that he had knightly status when he didn't. Yes, and these are some of the rivalry. I mean. So this soft side of Caravaggio uh, is to some extent imitated by the Baglioni. This is Caravaggio's rest on the flight to Egypt. Uh, but look at what uh, the rivalry is really over. In 1602, approximately, Caravaggio does this painting for the Marchese Giustiniani. It's about love that triumphs over, my god. It, it triumphs over decency, but it also triumphs over music, uh, astronomy, uh, architecture. Uh, the liberal arts, uh, warrior uh, culture, uh, over asp uh, aspiring nobility. It, this erotic love triumphs over everything, he said, to which Baglioni replies, no, sacred love, amor sacro, really triumphs. And here you have this really astounding painting, there's two versions, where sacred love with these marvelous swan's feathers barges in between a conversation between the devil and this guy who is the same model as our Saint Sebastian, so you can see the flipping between sacred and profane, breaks them up in the name of sacred love. Uh, the two paintings were in the same room in the Justiniani Palace because this was commissioned by the Marchese Justiniani, the secular head of the family, and this commissioned by his brother, Cardinal Bernardino Justiniani, and the two were on display uh, at opposite ends of the room on purpose uh, to let you choose, so to speak, which one you preferred. Uh, uh, Caravaggio, I'll wind up with uh, some later trends. Uh, uh, there's uh, the phenomenon of the rejections. 
Time and again, Caravaggio's altarpieces are rejected. Now, why? They're, they're snapped up by collectors, so there's a public for them. It's matters of propriety sometimes, inability to pay by the patrons at other times. A, a, um, a confraternity of uh, horse guards of the devoted to St. Anne and St. Peter's commissioned this altarpiece for St. Peter's. It was rejected by them and immediately scooped up by Cardinal Borghese. And it shows the three generations of redemption, St. Anne, the patron of the confraternity, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the babe uh, who's crushing a serpent or who's helping Mary to crush a serpent. Doubtless there's some theological thing there about Mary doing the crushing and Christ motivating her or something like that. That's the theology. But the painting certainly goes beyond theology in its nudity and it's an incredible uh, putting the mother and son almost too close together. And the same in this wonderful painting in Naples, the so-called Misericordia, or Seven Works of Mercy in Naples, uh, where you have all these works of mercy give clothes to the uh, naked, bury the dead, give drink to the thirsty, house the pilgrim. My God, give food to those who are hungry uh, as the daughter feeds her father in prison. And then the boy, uh, the infant Jesus, wrapped in a too nourishing mother's arms, looks down between a young male embrace at all of this stuff, um, which is going on. Um, heady, heady, heady stuff. Um, there's also an element of violence that grows in Caravaggio's paintings that's never there in Baglione. He gives a gift to his patron, Cardinal Del Monte, which is then given to the Grand Duke of Florence, the head of a Medusa. It's on a shield. And it went to the armory collection of the Grand Duke, where you can see it now in the Uffizi. But uh, the realism of this severed head of the Medusa is absolutely incredible. The story of Judith and Holofernes from the Old Testament uh, is many times in art, but never quite the graphic beheading that Judas, who was painted with uh, her upper torso nude at first, x-rays tell us, and then repainted, uh, shows in this painting. And then the self-portrait of uh, Caravaggio as, uh, as what? Self-portraits are often as David. Think of maybe even Michelangelo, there's a bit of that. But look at this, this is self-portrait as Goliath, as the person who's been severely hurt and offended by um, what might have been an erotic relationship. And by this painting, which recently came to light, it's now in Dublin, the capture of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, where these tough soldiers, uh, Capture Christ, uh, Judas is about to give a kiss. Jesus folds his arms and says, no, Jesus, don't do this. I love you too much for you to do this. Uh, the beloved disciples flee. And who's looking at the whole scene and illuminating it? Uh, it's Caravaggio himself, witness to violence uh, with his lantern. Uh, um, let me end with something on Baglione. He, of course, is a writer. He's the Vasari of his age. We have seen him as a painter, but I think his last 20 years, up to 1643, were really spent writing. His book on the uh, great basilicas of Rome uh, was a wonderful guidebook. And then his Lives of the Artist in 1642 is a really very valuable lives of 200 artists. The organizing principle was artists by the date of their death. So uh, he was kind of like sitting around waiting for his contemporaries to die off so that like a good British obituary editor, he could tell the truth about them. Rubens died in 1640, and he loved Rubens, so he gave him a wonderful life. 
Cavaliere d'Arpino got a nice life. You can imagine Federico Zuccheri, how glowing the life is. And then some of his enemies died too, and he rips them to shreds like uh, British obituaries still do. They're brief lives. There's no Vasarian teleology, no grand theoretical framework, but he had a very good eye, and his attributions almost always are uh, hold up. Um, his life of Caravaggio, for instance, is surprisingly fair. He hated him as a man, but he says in a kind of funny fairness, he says Caravaggio was a proud, mocking spirit, a satiric man. He spoke ill of all painters, even the great men of the past, and he claimed he outstripped all others in the profession. Some say he was the ruin of painting, since the young now go around imitating his example, painting ahead from nature and neglecting the fundamentals of drawing. They have no depth in art, but they're infatuated with color and don't know how to put two figures together or compose a history painting. But there's a certain tribute in there as well. He looked um, at some of the paintings. He looked at the boy bitten by a lizard and says, you know, the face really looks like someone screaming. Uh, he says Caravaggio was poor, selling his still lives for practically nothing. Uh, but then, he, he began to paint uh, for a cardinal and his stock rose. He talks about the musicians, the lute players. He said it was w the most beautiful painting Caravaggio ever made. And the entombment and the Vallicella, one of the most wonderful. Um, this side, uh, he, he knows that sometimes Caravaggio is rejected because of uh, too much violence. But then when he replaces him, like this is a Caravaggio replacement for a rejected conversion of St. Paul. All of the action which had been exterior before is now interior. The groom of the horse from which the apostle has fallen doesn't even see things. It's, the eyes are closed. St. Paul embraces the truth as light, a light that he doesn't see. The whole conversion experience is interior. Um, this is the way Caravaggio was painting. While here, I'm going to end with a late painting by Bellione, done in the 1621 period when he was in Mantua working for the Duchess Duke and Duchess of uh, Mantua, the Gonzagas. High class, high status. He loved status. He loved to talk about artists' houses and chapels and their funerals and uh, their medals of honor and their knighthoods. And uh, of all the artists' lives that he wrote, of course, all were dead. But at the very end of his book, he writes the life of one living artist himself. It's the longest life. Uh, it's extremely extolling of all his virtues, uh, especially of his rise in society. And I'll end with a quote about uh, Baglioni. Baglioni upheld the decorum of his rank and the honor of his profession, which he defended with all his powers. He was several times prince of the Academy of St. Luke and several times named head of his district by the civil, civic authorities. And twice he held judicial powers during an interregnum between popes. Even in old age, he continues to work and to garner praise. Now more than ever, he paints with love. And this painting which shows peace, charity, and justice uh, tempering each other with love, the golden chain that binds. Now he is, uh, still paints with love. So much is he in love with virtue. His reward is fame, finis. And on that note, I leave you with Baglioni. Thank you.